Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Ditch of Dreams, the cross-Florida barge canal and the struggle for Florida's future. This will be the linchpin, you know, the missing link, the, 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 the capstone, you know, they use all these kind of grand terms to, to describe what this canal will be. We'll discuss some rare copies of William Bartram's travels. It was first published in Philadelphia in 1791. Uh, but what we have here are actually two uh, copies of the 1792 London edition. So this is a first European printing. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. opened in 1825, linking New York City to the Great Lakes, allowing New York to become the primary port for the United States. By 1918, the Erie Canal was enlarged into the New York State Barge Canal. During that same time period, a series of politicians and businessmen envisioned cutting a canal from one side of Florida to the other, creating a direct pathway for commercial boat traffic from the Atlantic Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico. Stephen Knoll and David Tegeter are authors of the book Ditch of Dreams, the Cross-Florida Barge Canal and the Struggle for Florida's Future, published by the University Press of Florida. You might think that the idea of cutting the Florida Peninsula in half with a canal is a more contemporary idea, but David Tegeter says that people have been envisioning such a trade route for quite some time. The Cross-Florida Barge Canal is a result of really centuries of thinking uh, since Spanish exploration, people have been drawn to this idea of finding a waterway and if not making one uh, across the peninsula, basically to save three hour, uh, three, a three-day journey um, around the peninsula. And since Florida Territorial Days, um, the, the Florida legislatures had been turning to the federal government, especially the Army Corps of Engineers, to conduct surveys to find the best location to link the Gulf of Mexico to the Atlantic Ocean. And um, in 1935, there will be first the construction of the, of the ship canal, the Gulf Atlantic Ship Canal, which was a 30-foot deep um, waterway about 200 miles in length between actual digging and dredging 
um, where ocean-going vessels would cross the state of Florida through Ocala at a rate of about one an hour, about 25 ships a day. Um, as a result of a threat to the aquifer, uh, issues of saltwater intrusion, uh, there will be a turn towards creating a barge canal only 12 feet deep um, through the use of locks and dams, uh, a relatively safer way of traversing the, uh, the state. But that, as we'll see, creates a host of issues by the 1960s that will challenge the necessity for a canal. Proponents of the Cross-Florida Barge Canal planned a series of locks and dams that would allow a canal to be created from Jacksonville to Yankeetown, which is north of Tampa and west of Ocala. Stephen Knowles says that the story of this canal begins and ends at the Oklawaha River and Silver Springs. Well, the Oklawaha River is the center of the argument about the canal, uh, particularly in the 1960s. In the late 19th century, the Oklawaha is the center of Florida tourism as it provides an avenue into this um, pristine subtropical wilderness that is so different from the rest of America with its uh, varied wildlife and its strange uh, trees with Spanish moss and uh, its uh, major tributary of the Oklahoma is, is the Silver River which uh, boils up from uh, Florida's largest spring, Silver Springs. So uh, the Florida tourist industry grew up in these steamboats which traversed uh, the both the Oklahoma and the Silver from Palatka down to um, Silver Springs and so this is the center of, of tourism in the late 19th century. Uh, in the 1960s, um, anti-canal environmental activists utilized the literature of the 19th century to build a case for uh, saving this wonderful, unique, natural treasure, um, which they see as being destroyed by the canal. There were stops and starts to the Barge Canal Project and the arguments for why the canal was needed changed, but with the Great Depression of the 1930s, renewed interest in the project led to actual construction. David Tegeter. Yeah, the Great Depression is going to be one of the major arguments for canal construction. One, it'll, it'll resonate in the sense that, you know, with this canal will come economic growth and progress, right? But the construction itself, um, largely as a stimulus program, um, in 19, you know, when the Depression is reaching its peak, in, uh, in 1933, when there's 25% unemployment, there's now a compelling argument. We need this canal for jobs. And in the end, that's why the federal government will allocate money for it. Uh, and so in September of 1935, uh, 6,000 men are going to descend upon uh, Ocala, Florida, and and begin this construction. And it's, it's boomed. It's, it's, Ocala's now a boom town, uh, rapid growth. Um, in one week, the, the city issues 10 liquor licenses, you know, as, as a measure of that optimism, and, uh, and prosperity begins. So, so the idea is, is, you know, this is a construction job that will get people to work immediately. During their research for the book Ditch of Dreams, Noel and Tegeter uncovered evidence of violence against labor organizers during the Barge Canal construction in the 1930s. Stephen Noel. 
Labor is an issue in the 1930s, and when we think about labor activism and labor disputes, we usually think of large, heavy industry uh, in the Midwest, uh, Northeast, uh, particularly uh, Detroit and the auto industry. But in 1936, a labor organizer comes down to the canal, a, a man named George Timmerman. Uh, we're not sure whether he's associated with any major union, but certainly he's there to try to ensure that uh, workers are getting paid fairly, that their uh, working hours are, are shorter, their working conditions are okay, and he is uh, pretty much told by the powers that be within Ocala that he is not uh, welcome there, and by told, I mean that he is uh, captured, roughed up, and found in the woods, uh, crucified, tied to a tree with his lips sewn shut um, as a warning that labor activism will not be uh, tolerated on the canal, and um, after that, Mr. Timmerman kind of disappears from the historical record. While construction of the Cross-Florida Barge Canal was part of President Roosevelt's New Deal, opposing political forces temporarily stopped the project in 1935. David Tegeter points out that some of the work that was completed can still be seen today. By that point, they had done the rough excavation of key parts, especially towards the west. Um, in terms of, they, they had bridge stanchions, um, that were to be part of the Dixie Highway going over the canal, and those remain to this day along 441, just south of Ocala. Um, but what's important in the 1930s is, is the remnants of the diggings, right? These cuts in the ground will be a reminder of, of one, you know, not just a, a project that's failed, but, but the money and effort that went into it. And canal boosters will point to that, and, and especially the bridge stanchions, and say, look, we, we've started this. We need to finish it. Stories of large-scale construction projects, such as highways destroying African-American communities, are common. The intersection of I-4 and the East-West Expressway in Orlando is just one example. The African-American town of Santos fell victim to the cross-Florida barge canal in the 1930s. Stephen Knoll. Santos is a uh, African American town about six miles south of Ocala that uh, um, basically is separate from white Florida. Uh, you know, these people work both their own farms and also uh, within the wider community, but it is a, an African American uh, community um, built around both Saturday night juke joints and Sunday morning churches. Um, and it is uh, wiped off the map in the 1930s by uh, the canal. Um, the canal is never built there, but the land is taken from these people, either from eminent domain or, or purchased by pennies on the dollar, and the town is basically destroyed. Um, the only town that will be wiped out completely by the canal. Um, and you know, the people who, who live there uh, both felt... Uh, abandoned by the government, but also felt uh, proud that they were at least at some level contributing to something positive for the government. Um, then they again felt abandoned when the canal was not built. But, in, you know, in the ultimate irony, the canal is supposed to be for jobs, jobs that were not offered to African Americans um, in the Jim Crow South. So the jobs that were um, available on the canal were for whites only. So these people give up their houses, their land, their hard work, hard-won houses and land um, for the possibility of a better life that is not even offered to them. Federal funding allowed construction of the cross-Florida Barge Canal to resume in 1964, with President Johnson presiding over the groundbreaking ceremony. In the decades prior, national defense joined job creation as a rationale for building the cross-Florida Barge Canal. 
after the canal, as the ship canal has stopped in 1936, boosters feel that they have to come up with a new rationale for building it, have to build consensus within Congress, within a wider national constituency. And with the world lurching uh, precariously towards war in the late 1930s, um, the issue of national defense takes prominence in their selling of the canal. And the national defense angle is that the canal will provide a sheltered waterway um, for protection, especially for oil tankers as they traverse the waters um, from the oil fields of Texas and Oklahoma to the refineries of New York that these ships can go uh, along the Gulf Intercoastal Waterway, then through the uh, the soon to be built for them, cross Florida Barge Canal, then along the intercoastal all the way to New York, and they will not be able to be uh, uh, victims to the predatory um, operations of, of enemy submarines, whoever they might be. That argument continues after the war. Um, in the 1950s, it'll be a Cold War, and so you'll have a replacement of that, you know, of that threat from Nazi Germany with now Soviet subs, and with the Cuban Revolution now perhaps Cuban submarines, right? So the national defense argument resonates over decades. Job creation and national defense weren't the only reasons given for building the cross-Florida Barge Canal. Proponents also claimed it would be an integral part of a national waterway system. It's trying to find new rationales to sell the project. And, you know, this part of this integrated national waterways project becomes an important reason for having the canal. We, we need an alternative to, to, to rails. We need an alternative to trucking. These monopoly industries are going to, going to you know, have predatory pricing, and this will offer a, a reasonable alternative. And, you know, especially for bulk commodities, it'll provide a, a, a cheaper means of transportation. And you know, the words they keep using for this cross-Florida barge canal are missing link. You know, they connect the waterways of the Mississippi region to the waterways of the East Coast, which now have no connection, and this will be the linchpin, you know, the missing link, the, 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 the capstone. You know, they use all these kind of grand terms to, to describe what this canal will be. And it'll be a, a link that will be connected to other proposed canals, such as the Sanford-Titusville Canal, right, to connect the Gulf to, uh, you know, Cape Canaveral. Uh, rockets constructed in Huntsville, Alabama will now be shipped to uh, the east coast of Florida with ease. Also, another argument will be flood control. Um, in the late 50s and early 60s, there will be uh, a series of, of floodings that, you know, the, the people will now say, you know, this is another way that we can manage Florida's water resources. And, and finally, in looking for ways to, to sell the canal, uh, boosters come upon the ideas of recreation, that, you know, the canal will provide recreation for the masses instead of having this river that's beautiful, but, but, um, but, um, accessible only to a few, those hardy few in, 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 a, in kayaks or canoes. We can make it accessible to the masses in powerboats and, and you know, make it at some level a democratic recreation and tying into the ideas of TVA, which, you know, gives, and I, and I talk about where there's, you know, 4,000 more mileage of, 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 of riverfront property, of waterfront property. You know, so, so bizarrely, they want to connect this idea of, of commercial transportation with this idea of democratized recreation, um, which in retrospect seems silly, but you know, they're, they're looking for other ways to sell this idea. 
When construction on the Cross Florida Barge Canal resumed in 1964, about a third of the project was completed before it was finally stopped in 1971. As David Tegeter explains, the halting of the project was largely due to the efforts of environmental activist Marjorie Carr. The overarching argument is how this will threaten the Ocklawaha River. I mean, this is about preserving the Ocklawaha as this, to her mind, pristine waterway, this. Rare canopied river that was a true national treasure. Historically, it wasn't so pristine, but compared, you know, to elsewhere, and, and most certainly compared to the proposed canal,、um, this was a unique、uh, river. And what you'll see is is her developing a coalition of folks,、uh, beginning out of a meeting with out of Florida Audubon, the local chapter in Gainesville, and. Going through two important iterations, first in the early '60s,、uh, a group, just to use the shorthand label,、uh, Citizens for Conservation. Although that's an important argument that that you know they want to conserve the Ocklawaha River Valley, both its not only for fishing but also local habitat for wildlife, especially turkeys and all that. And it's interesting they use the argument, you know, X amount of Turkey hunting habitat will be destroyed, right?、Um, using this conservationist ethic, by the end of the decade, by the end of the 1960s, you'll see more of an argument towards preservation. That this is a, a river valley、uh, distinct in and of itself and needs to be preserved as as this distinct national treasure.、Um, and by that point, Carr will have created with associates like Bill Partington and David Anthony. And John Kaus,、um, to be sure. I mean, she's most associated with this, but she had a cadre of people who、uh, who worked diligently on this project. But they will create what's called Florida Defenders of Environment of the Environment,、uh, FDE. And by then, they'll be making this argument about preserving the Ocklawaha. To help put an end to the Cross Florida Barge Canal, environmentalists could point to the use of a gigantic, destructive tractor-like machine called the Crusher that decimated Florida's natural landscape. It's a machine designed specifically for use on the Oklahoma, built by a man named F. Brown Gregg out of Leesburg,、um, specifically to.、Um, Mow down the trees in the Oklahoma River Valley、um, to provide for the establishment of the Rodman Reservoir.、Um, this machine was designed to make the removal of the trees quick and efficient,、um, and it did its job too well by destroying the. Natural environment so profoundly, Carr and her other FDE allies could bring people out to the river and say, "Look at what it looked like before, and you know parts of it that hadn't been touched. We go from there to this, which looked like at some level an atomic wasteland." And she could say, "This is what they are doing to the river." Plus, any concerns about economics, FDE could argue, you know that. What's happening is all these trees, which could be harvested, sold for timber, and at least alleviate some of the cost. That's not happening. This thing is just knocking them down into the muck. And when the reservoir is flooded in 1968, these pop up to the top of of the water to be harvested there and burned because there's no way to get them out. So not only is it ugly and destructive, it is wasteful and、um, problematic as well. Yeah, and this caught serious、uh, attention across the state.、Uh, 
Lawton Childs during his famous Walk in Lawton campaign. Uh, we'll walk through the Ocklawaha Valley and, and point to this issue and, and, and see this as an unsightly mess. So it, it captured the imagination. And this thing could mow down um, six 80-foot cypress trees in one swath. It basically cleared about an acre an hour. Uh, it was quite formidable. The Cross Florida Barge Canal was finally killed in 1971. Today, though, there are still unresolved issues left over from the attempt to create a canal for commercial water traffic from one side of Florida to the other. Stephen Knoll. Well, well, there's two kind of at-odds remnants of the canal. Number one is the 107-mile Cross Florida Greenway, now known since 1988 as the Marjorie Harris Carr Cross Florida Greenway, which is this linear park um, which is managed by the um, uh, Office of Greenways and Trails of the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, which is this amazing swath of greenery in the midst of, of uh, north from Orlando and south from Ocala sprawl um, that uh, preserves and protects a part of natural Florida that would have been gone. Um, and ironically, it's preserved because the canal was going to be there. So that, that's this positive impact. On the other hand, there's this continuing uh, debate and discussion over um, What's going to happen with the Oklawaha River as, as the Kirkpatrick Dam is still there, the reservoir, the Robin Reservoir behind it is still there, and the river does no longer flow freely um, to the St. John's, and um, FDE still is pushing for uh, the dam to be removed. Um, federal authorities still are pushing for the dam to be removed. Um, and the longer it stays up, the longer the ecosystem behind the dam uh, becomes naturalized, as it were, and those people who are in favor of it maintain that um, it is an acceptable, natural part of Florida and should be maintained, and as well as they maintain the reason that it's important to keep it is it provides significant economic growth to a rather economically depressed county, which is uh, Putnam County, and the growth, the economic engine there is bass fishing. Stephen Knoll and David Tegeter are authors of the book Ditch of Dreams, the Cross Florida Barge Canal and the Struggle for Florida's Future, published by the University Press of Florida. While most Floridians today are pleased that the environmental damage that the completion of the canal would have caused has been stopped, there are still some who wish that Florida had its own version of New York's Erie Canal. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. If you enjoy this program, you'll also want to receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. Just go to our website at myfloridahistory.org and click on the Join Now button. That's myfloridahistory.org. I'm a traveling man, made a lot of stops all over the world. Historians, conservationists, and readers of all kinds have enjoyed the scientific yet romantic prose of William Bartram. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, naturalist William Bartram first came to Florida in the 1700s. Yeah, that's right. Uh, William Bartram was a, uh, what we call a naturalist at the time. Today would be considered a biologist, and he was 
born in America. He grew up in uh, in Pennsylvania. Um, and he was really at the forefront of uh, modern uh, botany at the time. Uh, he learned the science from his father, John Bartram, who operated a botanical garden just south of Philadelphia. Um, and his father, John, had actually traveled south into uh, the southern colonies, including Florida, in the 1760s. And when John got a little bit older, or, sorry, when William uh, got a little bit older, he decided to travel down on his own. Uh, between 1773 and 1777, um, he visited uh, parts of Georgia, east and west Florida, uh, and then north into the uh, Carolinas and, and collected not only botanical specimens, but um, took incredibly copious notes on the flora and fauna of, of Florida. Uh, because we have to remember at this time when Florida was still a British colony between 1763 and 1783, uh, most American colonists and, and many Europeans for that matter knew nothing about Florida. It was still a, a, a virgin wilderness. Uh, so William Bartram was really, again, kind of at the forefront of um, exploring and identifying uh, in a scientific manner the, uh, the wildlife of, of East and West Florida. Here at the Library of Florida History, you have two very special editions of Bartram's Travels. That's right. That's the uh, the shorthand title of a book that he published, uh, which is essentially a compilation of all of those field notes he collected during his expeditions with his father, John, and then again uh, in the 1770s on his own. And the full title is Travels Through North and South Carolina, Georgia, East and West Florida, the Cherokee Country, the extensive territories of the Muscogee or Creek Confederacy, and the country of the Choctaws containing an account of the soil and natural productions of those regions, together with observations on the manner of the Indians. So that's the full title. Uh, of course, today we just refer to it as Bartram's Travels, but it was first published in Philadelphia in 1791. Uh, but what we have here are actually two uh, copies of the 1792 London edition. So this is a first European printing um, of his book, uh, like again, we, we would call Travels. Um, both are in really an exquisite condition in their original bindings. Um, they were donated to the Florida Historical Society at different times. Uh, in fact, the one that we're looking at here, uh, you'll recognize the signature is uh, donated by Clarence B. Moore. And Clarence B. Moore, as uh, many would probably know, is an early um, amateur archaeologist who traveled throughout Florida in about the late 19th and early 20th century. So uh, I'm sure Moore used this book as a reference point, as many um, historians and archaeologists still use today. Uh, and the second copy that we have was actually donated to the Society in the late 1970s by a descendant of uh, Dr. Charles Torrey Simpson. Uh, and uh, many people who live or grew up around uh, South Florida and Dade County would recognize uh, uh, Simpson's name. Charles Torrey Simpson was a, a naturalist in his own right. Um, he uh, studied shells, but also botany and, and the flora and fauna of, uh, of Florida, lived around Lemon City in North Dade County. Uh, but this was a, a book that was part of his private collection. So again, we have um, generations of uh, nature enthusiasts, conservationists, anthropologists, historians, uh, and just anyone, any lover of, of Florida history um, it would be attracted to, uh, to this book. And the conservation and environmental movements have certainly grown over the past century, and uh, Bartram's travels is, is still an important work uh, for them as well. That's right. So, you know, 200 years later, this book is still in print. In fact, you can find a number of different uh, facsimile copies. You could, there are editions uh, geared specifically towards the contemporary environmentalist and the botanist focusing on 
um, some of those aspects of his journeys. But uh, you're right, there's there's an incredible lasting impact. Um, you know, Bartram set out, I think, on this journey essentially just to identify a lot of these foreign plant species. But uh, in doing so, he came in contact with a lot of uh, native tribes, native peoples who were living in Florida, who at that time were, uh, again, very uh, misunderstood and, and really knew very little about. In fact, even the British colonial government in Florida knew, knew very little about um, the, the community uh, of a lot of the Seminole and, and uh, Creek tribes who were living in Florida. And Bartram spent quite a bit of time uh, not necessarily trading with these people, but uh, traveling around their communities, communicating with these people. And, and again, because he took such uh, incredibly detailed notes, we have a, 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 an incredible window into you know the late 18th century here in Florida. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Be sure to join us right here again next week. You can get our daily posts on Facebook at Florida Historical Society and visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.